BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by Mike Davis. Mike is the president of, among other organizations, the Article 3 Project, which is a judicial branch focus group, and the Internet Accountability Project, which is a big tech focus group that I actually volunteer on the side for. Really excited that Mike is going to join us. We'll talk about the Supreme Court, big tech, and all of those great issues. But until then, let's set the table a little bit. So we are rapidly, of course, at this point, rapidly approaching the midterm elections. We are less than two weeks away from the 2022 midterm elections that will be on Tuesday, November 8th. I actually early voted myself on Monday. As an aside, I actually have some philosophical qualms about early voting. I'm a longtime skeptic of early voting. I mean, you never know what October surprise is going to happen there. It seems to me that elections should be a snapshot in time, not a moving target. What happened to Hunter Biden and the New York Post and all that in October 2020, I think, is kind of a a very crystal clear example of the perils and the pitfalls of early voting. But nonetheless, given that it exists, I, I was happy to kind of exercise its availability. But most people end up voting still on Election Day, and the polls are starting to really solidify at this point, it seems. A red wave seems to be happening. I am very bullish at this point for Republicans' chances in this particular midterm election. Let's do a little state-by-state analysis. So go down to Georgia. Georgia, back in 2020, with multiple Senate runoffs, lots of drama there with Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff. I mean, Georgia has really become one of the most contested political states in the country. And Herschel Walker has been the news over the past month or so for some really unfortunate reasons. We all knew that Herschel had a checkered personal life. But Herschel, as the time we're recording this, is actually now pulling ahead in numerous polls. You have to remember, of course, if you go back to our episode when we had Robert Cahalli of, of the Trafalgar Group, the median pollster in this country systemically underpolls and underutilizes Republican outreach. So put another way, if the polls in a given race are starting to gravitate in favor of the Republican nominee, at least to a meaningful extent, that seems to me to be almost game over. And that's not quite the case down in the Herschel Walker-Raphael Warnock race, but the point is it's very close. And the other point is that Brian Kemp down there is going to win by a wide margin over inveterate election denier Stacey Abrams, who still is only kind of sort of maybe... Uh, admitted that she lost the 2018 gubernatorial election to Brian Kemp. So if Brian Kemp wins by that level of margin, I have to think, I have to assume that Herschel Walker is going to be dragged across the finish line there in that Senate seat, thus taking back that Senate seat from Raphael Warnock and the Democrats. I see a similar dynamic happening in Arizona, another formerly red and now quite clearly purple state. Carrie Lake, Carrie Lake is the Republican gubernatorial nominee in Arizona. She is a rising political superstar. Now, my friends in Arizona who have met her say that she 
is absolutely freaking awesome in person. And you don't have to meet her in person to see it. I mean, look at the videos that are coming across the transom that we are all seeing on social media, that we are all seeing on cable news. She's just really good at this. And part of the reason why she is really, really good at this, that kind of snappily kind of putting the media in their place, very Ron DeSantis style in the way she talks to the media, she herself has a media background and she knows all too well the devil that she's dealing with there. She's an incredibly gifted politician. It seems to me that she's going to win her gubernatorial race over Katie Hobbs by a healthy margin, maybe not quite the margin that Brian Kemp is going to win over Stacey Abrams by in Georgia. But I do think at this point it is going to be a high enough margin to pull Blake Masters across the finish line in that Senate race as well. If Blake does defeat the incumbent senator there, Mark Kelly, that will be two D to R flips in the Senate. And I have to look just north of Arizona. I see a similar thing happening there in Nevada. It looks to me like Lombardo in the gubernatorial race, Adam Laxalt in the in the Senate race, they are in good shape. I think Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, it's going to be a nail biter. I, th- I, I really think at this point, as the public sees more and more of John Fetterman barely able to put a sentence together, I think that Mehmet Oz is going to take that election. I, Ron Johnson seems safe at this point in Wisconsin. J.D. Vance, no brainer in Ohio. So it's looking really good for Republicans. The only question is uh, how broad is the is the red wave? Will Lee Zeldin win in, in New York State statewide? Can Republicans actually retake the state of Oregon in the gubernatorial race? That seems like it's it's a legitimate possibility at this point. And you know, you know, just to kind of close out here on the 2022 midterms. Is Monday evening, I was in Fort Pierce, Florida to see the one and only Florida gubernatorial debate between Ron DeSantis and Charlie Crist. Now, Florida has become less of a swing state now than it was as recently as four to six years ago or so. The state is clearly trending red. The only question is whether Ron DeSantis wins by 10 to 12 points or single digits. I actually think he's looking possibly going to a double digit victory at this point. But one thing that I want to flag for the listeners here. You know, being there in person, Charlie Crist's supporters, which, by the way, he bust in. He apparently bust in Broward County bright blue teachers union apparatchiks who were wearing these pro-abortion T-shirts. They were obnoxious as hell. They were really, really, really boorish in bad faith. And from an attendee, from an attendee perspective, it kind of ruined the evening a little bit. But the governor, the governor did a very solid job. He steered the course. He was rock steady. Some idiots who don't understand how political debates work are knocking him for dodging, or so they say. Uh, Charlie Chris pointed cross-question about 2024. They had agreed beforehand, the candidates, not to ask each other questions. So when DeSantis refused to answer the question, he was literally just abiding by the actual rules that the two candidates had agreed upon. That attack is just entirely in bad faith. So, you know, we'll check in next week on the midterms, but it seems like a lot of exciting stuff is coming ahead. And speaking of exciting stuff coming ahead, we're going to take it to a quick commercial break. We'll be joined on the other side by the great Mike Davis. Stay with us. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So I know for the listeners, it seems like many weeks I say that it's a pleasure to be joined by a good friend, but this week I think I mean it a little more than most. So it really is a pleasure. It's probably overdue 
to be joined by a very good friend. That is Mike Davis. Mike is the president of multiple organizations, including the Article 3 Project and the Internet Accountability Project, the latter of which I volunteer for sometimes as a counsel and policy advisor myself. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining the program this week. Thank you, Josh, and uh, thank you for uh, being associated with me. I know you take a lot of grief for that, but I'm, <laughs> I'm very happy to have you volunteer for Internet Accountability Project. Absolutely. No, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing. For, for the listeners who are not aware, Mike is almost a nightly fixture on Fox News these days. You can you, you can see him basically anytime on, on cable news primetime. But Mike, before we get into the substance here, a lot to talk about big tech, Supreme Court, Biden, DOJ, just some of the hot topics that I want to get your your takes on for the for the listeners who are who are less familiar with you because you have a you have a pretty fascinating story to how you got to where you are right now. Like me, you're a you're a lawyer by background, not necessarily grueling hours in a law firm every day nine to five anymore, or or not to midnight as the case may be for some. So tell us how you got here. What is what is basically your your professional your what is your professional journey? Yeah, I so I'm from Des Moines, Iowa. I grew up to, with teachers as parents, and I grew up pretty normal, Midwest, working class upbringing. I went to the University of Iowa for undergrad, uh, got involved with campaigns there. Uh, I got involved, I, I actually interned for House Speaker Newt Gingrich during Clinton's impeachment. I had no connections in DC. My family didn't give money. I just was dogged and beat down their door until they finally relented and hired me. And I worked in the speaker's policy office during impeachment. And then I went back to the University of Iowa and started the University of Iowa students for George W. Bush for the Iowa caucuses in 2000. And I ran it across the state at every college campus, about 25 campuses across the state of Iowa. Went to work for my home state senator after I graduated from Iowa in May of 2000. Chuck Grassley, I opened his mail. And then when Bush won, I went to work for the Bush administration. I actually worked at HHS. I worked in the White House liaison office. Their job is to help the president do the hiring and firing in each one of the departments and agencies. So that was my first run in with Tony Fauci was uh, back in 2001, 2002. <laughs> right. uh, I went to the University of Iowa for law school, got involved again politically, worked in the Bush Justice Department both summers. And then I went out to the Bush 43 White House. I helped with the hiring and firing from the first term to the second term in the Office of Political Affairs. I met then private sector lawyer Neil Gorsuch. He became a friend. He went to the Justice Department. And then when he became a judge on the Tenth Circuit in Denver, he dragged me out to Colorado. I went kind of reluctantly. I was one of his first law clerks. I was out in Colorado for a year. I loved it. So I stayed. I was a private practice attorney for 10 years doing real legal work in the real world. And then when Trump uh, was a presidential candidate, I helped uh, get Judge Gorsuch put on the Supreme Court list, um, picked by President Trump, confirmed. I was one of his first law clerks, uh, his elderly law clerks, to get, help him get set up on the Supreme Court for a few months. I was going to go back to Colorado, and then Chuck Grassley's office came a call again, and he asked me to come be his chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee. I helped President Trump. Um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, and uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Ch uh, Chairman Chuck Grassley confirm a record, record number of President Trump's judici judicial nominees in his first two years. And then I left. I was going to go to the private practice of law and make money for, for <laughs> again, after doing all this public service stuff. And I got convinced to start the Article 3 project, which uh, helped President Trump confirm his judges for the next two years of his first term. 
And then I also started the Internet Accountability Project, which fights big tech from the right. We were the first group on the right to take on big tech on antitrust, Section 230 reform, data privacy. And with these, they're, they're, they're kind of they work hand in glove now to take on big tech, to take on corporate power, to defend constitutionalist judges. So I have my hands full. It seems like you say I'm on Fox every night, so uh, they can put lipstick on a pig and put me on TV. <laughs> but it's, it's a constant fight, as you know, Josh, and you're part of it on the Internet Accountability Project. But it's hard to find people on the right who have the backbone and the willingness to take on the left on a day-to-day basis. And we're willing to do that at the Article 3 Project and the Internet Accountability Project. I think growing up with red hair, you just don't give a damn if you get punched <laughs> in the face. Yeah, no, Mike Mike is a redhead from the prairie. I think that's one way to describe you. He's, he's a redhead from the prairie, but, a, but the personality of a New York City, Brooklyn-born street brawler. So, you know, and, and, you know, thinking about that biography, which thank you for sharing all of that, the reason I kind of want you to talk about that is because, you know, the listeners will hear that you have experience working in all three branches of the federal government, the Supreme Court, DOJ, you name it. But I, I mentioned the street brawler thing because if there's, if there's one word that, comes to mind when I think of you, Mike, it, it is bulldog. I think of you as just a, as someone who just does not give up. You will double down, you will dig in, you will get your knuckles dirty. And I think there's one instant that I kind of want you to reflect on for the listeners here that really comes to mind as I think kind of encapsulating the sentiment, which was you were at the epicenter. Like really, you were there ground zero for the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination fight in 2018. So you were, this is when, at the time that you were chief counsel for Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who was heading the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time. Walk us through how that went down. And the reason I ask is, as I've mentioned on the show before, that was for me, I think one of my foremost red pilling moments, as the kids say these days. I mean, I, I've been on the right since I was 12 years old. I, I have not ever, ever been a liberal or of the left. But it was a really radicalizing moment for me, and I think millions and millions of other Americans who kind of saw the Democrats throw out 5,000 years of innocence or proven guilty norms. So talk us a little bit about what that was like for you. Yeah, so with the Kavanaugh, I mean, first of all, with my background, I was raised by liberals. And so I was raised with like do-good liberals who worked in public schools in Des Moines, Iowa. They actually, there was... There was one minor, majority minority school in Des Moines, Iowa, and my parents, uh, both of my parents worked at this school. They were they they were liberals, right? And that's how I was raised. I was raised going to these school events. I was raised uh, going to sporting events, going to school activities. I was raised at this school. I went to a Catholic school with my siblings, but I was raised around this community. So I have learned from a very early age how these liberal policies that are supposed to help poor, oftentimes black kids, destroys them. And so I've I've been a conservative and a Republican before I even knew what that meant because I just saw how awful this is. So I went into politics eyes wide open about what the Democrat Party is willing to do to people. Like they are willing to destroy lives for power. And that's exactly what they did during the Kavanaugh fight. I mean I've worked on nominations, I've worked on appointments for President Bush, uh, again back in uh, back in 2001, 2002, 2004, 2005, I've had many experiences working on this. So I went into this thing pretty eyes wide open, pretty pretty experienced on what was going to happen. And I knew with Brett Kavanaugh, people thought, okay, this is the perfect guy from Central Casting. He has all the elite credentials. He has all the right friends in D.C. He should sail through this confirmation because there's nothing really in his background. He's a, he's a Boy Scout. He's been through six 
FBI full field, single scope background investigations. They've investigated him going back to his childhood. No one's ever said a bad thing about him. He's kind of a boy scout, right? And so, but I knew that, that would not be enough because he was going to replace, he was replacing Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court. And this was the swing vote, right? And so I knew that the Democrats were going to go scorched earth on this guy. And I was bracing for it. So we built up with Chairman Chuck Grassley, we built up an all-star staff. We had 24 people ready to go wow. on Senate Judiciary, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee staff just on this nomination. And we were ready to uh, to go to war with this thing because we knew that Planned Parenthood, we knew the abortion industry, we knew the Soros-funded left was going to do whatever it took to stop this nomination, and they did. So we had the first hearing, and remember, within the first like eight seconds of Chairman Chuck Grassley opening the hearing, you had the clown show of the paid actors and activists in the uh, in the Judiciary Committee room working hand in glove with the clowns on the Democrat side of the dais, the Senate Democrat clowns on the dais, screaming and ranting and raving about papers, right? They wanted to get every damn paper that pres uh, that uh, that uh, then uh, Brett Kavanaugh as the White House st staff secretary saw or touched or oversaw when he worked for George W. Bush. This was millions and millions and millions of pages of irrelevant records that had nothing to do with his judicial philosophy or how he was going to go about deciding cases. It was just purely a delay, a stall tactic. It was a way to try to, uh, to grind this nomination to a halt. So we get through the first hearing, the paper cut hearing, as I call it. And then all of a sudden, at the end of this hearing, I, I see the Democrat staffers all giddy running off, and I knew something was up. And that's when the Christine Blasey Ford allegations came out of nowhere. And she alleged that Brett Kavanaugh somehow, somewhere, some uh, at some time inappropriately touched her, but she doesn't know how, when it was, where it was. She doesn't know how she got there. She doesn't know how she got home, but it was only one beer. Just complete nonsense. Uh, we, we immediately uh, brought in Grassley's oversight team to work on this. We had the 24 people on the nominations team, plus like the 18 people on his oversight team, we had over 40 people working night and day to chase down every one of these allegations. All six of them that came in, we chased down every single one of them. We reached out to the accusers. We we sought evidence. We sought corroborating evidence. All, every one of these allegations was baseless. Several of these were actually ended up uh, just being flat out lies and got referred to the four there were four referrals by chairman chuck grassley to the to the justice department including the fbi to open a criminal investigation on it but it was just complete nonsense um so we had a fair hearing the democrats uh, like you said josh they wanted to change the presumption of innocence yep. they wanted to make it where he was presumed guilty because it's me too. It's the new me too era and presumption of innocence goes out the door. You just say that he's guilty of sexual assault. He has to prove that he's innocent. And even when he pro we prove that he's innocent, they say, okay, well, the, the damage is, uh, there's too much political damage is too hard on the country. We just need to throw him overboard. And my position was, hell no, we're not doing this. We're not going to do this. We're this is so much bigger than Brett Kavanaugh. This is so much bigger than the Supreme Court. This is about the presumption of innocence in America, and there is no way in hell, if we, can, if we can let a Supreme Court nominee get massacred like this, just imagine what your son, your brother, yep. your husband, your nephew, just imagine what's going to happen.
Let's take it to a quick commercial break. On the other side, let's kind of get into some current events a little more. Stay with us. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So while we're on the topic of the Supreme Court, Mike, we had a couple of episodes of this show earlier this year just talking about how remarkable the last U.S. Supreme Court term was from a conservative perspective. And we are now just getting started in the next Supreme Court term. What are your thoughts on this term? I mean, there's there's a number of high profile cases, affirmative action being, I think, the most highly visible topic that is back before the court this term. You have a major free speech religious liberty case out of your former court, the Tenth Circuit there in Colorado. A couple other major cases of Voting Rights Act case. What are you what are you looking for this term as a court watcher? And what are you expecting on those high profile cases? Well, this is a it's gonna be a monumental term, probably the most consequential term in, you know, 90 years. I think Biggest uh, President Trump's biggest accomplishment of his first term was his transformation of the Supreme Court with his appointments of Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett. And what you're going to start to see is for the first time in 90 years is you're going to have a court that uh, that focuses more on following the law instead of uh, uh, instead of uh, being a policymaker. And they're not going to be perfect. They make mistakes from time to time, but it's going to be incrementally each term in that direction. Um, you have you have the three camps within the court, really. You have the the Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch camp that are more constitutionalist. Let the chips fall where they may. You know they they'll make they'll make mistakes here and there, like my former boss has done in some prior cases. Prior cases, but overall. They're they're in that camp where it's like we're going to follow the law. It's not our job to worry about the consequences. That's the political branch's job to worry about the consequences of our rulings. Uh, then there's the the more middle camp. Barrett kind of straddles the fence between the the, the constitutionalist camp and the middle camp. Uh, Kavanaugh's in that camp, although he's probably more towards the constitutionalist camp. And then there's the chief justice who takes more of an incremental approach to the law, and he's. He's concerned about what is the public fallout of the rulings. What's the political fallout of the rulings? So he'll take a more constitutional, or he'll take a more political incremental approach than the constitutionalist camp. It's people think that the chief justice is liberal. He's not liberal at all. He just takes a more incremental, uh, more political approach. And that you know that I, I, whether that's a good approach or not, it's 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 certainly not that he's liberal. And then there there are the three liberals. And what's good about the three liberals is you're going to have three liberals writing lonely dissents uh, for the rest of their time on the Supreme Court, which is great. And that's that's going to be president. That is President Trump's most important legacy of his first term. And what you're seeing with this uh, term of court, you're going to see some big, important cases like there's an EPA case right. that tries to figure out, does the EPA have the, the right to what does it mean? Waters of the United States under the statute, under the Clean Water Act? Uh, how much power 
does the EPA have to regulate, you know, ponds and streams and if they're not navigable waters around the United States, how much power does the federal government have versus the states? Remember, as you know, Josh, our constitution is a loan agreement between we, the people, and our government. And we loan the federal government uh, specific enumerated uh, divided powers. And if we don't loan our federal government those powers in our constitution, those powers are supposed to belong to us. Remember, we are the sovereign. It's not like England from which we escaped, where the king is the sovereign and the king gives us privileges and rights. We are the sovereign and we loan power to government. And over, you know, starting about 90 years ago, that got flipped on its head uh, during the FDR, FDR administration, the switch in time that saved nine. They, uh, they The court changed its jurisprudence on the Commerce Clause, and they've essentially held that the federal government has unlimited power unless the Constitution says it doesn't have the power. It's flipped the Constitution from a shield to protect us from the government to a sword that the government uses to come after us. And I think that this constitutionalist court is going to start to turn that. You're going to see that. And for example, the EPA case, uh, you're going to start to see with this affirmative action case that no, you liberal college campuses, you don't get to discriminate against Asian Americans to benefit another race. That's just, that doesn't fly under the 14th Amendment. It doesn't fly under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And racial discrimination is racial discrimination. So you don't get to do that. Um, there are many other cases that are coming up related to how the how the how we redistrict our house seats every 10 years. Every 10 years under the Constitution, we do a census, and then the, the states have to redraw their house district uh, lines and so they can send members of the House of Representatives to Congress. Well, under our Constitution, it's very clear that the state legislatures get to decide how those House lines are drawn. Well, the problem for the Democrats um, is that Republicans control too many legislat state legislatures, and so the Democrats want to have their state Supreme Court justices, their Democrat state Supreme Court justices, and their Democrat-appointed commissions redraw these lines instead of state legislatures. And the Supreme Court is going to hear cases on that and say that you can't do that. There's a case that you talked about out of Colorado, a 303 creative where it's a free speech case. We have we had the cake case before where, look, I, I split my time between DC and Colorado. And there, I can assure you, there are no, there is no shortage of bakers or artists who will make any damn cake you want or build any website you want, LGBT, Christian, whatever. But you have these left-wing radical activists who are hunting down and targeting Christian bakers and targeting Christian website designers who are literally minding their own damn business and they're targeting them and saying, bake our gay marriage cake. And the Christian respectfully says, I, I'll bake you a cake. I just, my religious beliefs make it where I can't make a, a cake about your gay marriage because it's against my Christian beliefs. And then they go to the state of Colorado and the state of Colorado finds them and, and finds them and harasses them and tries to chase them out of business. This is nonsense. The Supreme court, uh, said that the bakers can't uh, that the state of Colorado can't do that with the baker. Now we have the website, and this needs to be decided once and for all. So these left wing radicals stop playing these games where they're trying to chase Christians and other believers out of the public square. Um, and and, so, I, and I'm cautiously optimistic about that case. Sorry to cut you off, but, but like the fact that the court granted cert and agreed to hear this case so soon after the masterpiece cake shop case that you're talking about, which they had this 
kind of mealy-mouthed, 7-2, extremely in-the-weeds procedural quirk that kind of sort of redounded to the cake maker Jack Phelps' interest. The, the fact that they're agreeing to hear this case, you know, let alone by pure happenstance, a case out of the exact same state, Colorado, I'm not sure what's going on, by the way, in, in both of our kind of sort of former states, Colorado, but the fact that they're agreeing to hear this case, I think, is kind of auspicious in and of itself. So I, I tend to I tend to share your optimism, and you know before we move on and and, and close out in in the, in the next five to ten minutes on the tech issue, I just want to have one follow up question actually on on the court because you you helpfully kind of broke down the three 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 split that some folks like Professor Josh Blackman down in, in South Texas College of Law have referred to. He actually wrote a, gro- a great op-ed at Newsweek Opinion uh, last summer, kind of breaking down that three 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 court. But again, you know the Trump the Trump justices, for lack of a better term, better than just about anyone, given how involved you were with Chuck Grassley on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Do you think that there's a reasonable chance that justices Barrett and Kavanaugh might, over the course of their career, shift a little bit more towards that kind of Thomas Alito Gorsuch camp? Or do you see them kind of remaining, kind of carving out this this firm kind of center-right space, for lack of a better term, between kind of Thomas and Alito and the chief? Yes, I do, actually. I actually think that Barrett is largely there. I think that she's just trying to get her feet on the ground and uh, not make too many waves in her first couple terms on the court. I think Kavanaugh, I think if you heard him testify at his first confirmation hearing, the paper cut hearing, he talked about how the chief justice was his role model and his, his guiding light, essentially, on how he would be a judge. If you think about the court this way, if Thomas is at 100 and Sotomayor is at zero, Let's say that the chief is at 50 or 60, somewhere in there. I think after the first hearing, when they attacked Kavanaugh, I think they pro- the left probably pushed Kavanaugh five or 10 points to the right. And then when they went after him and accused him, falsely, falsely accused him of serial gang rape, they probably pushed him five or more, five or 10 more points to the right. And when they went after him at the one-year mark and called for his impeachment, Five or more ten, five or more ten points to the right, and then when they tried to kill him and his wife and his two daughters in their home at one o'clock in the morning, you're probably going to make Justice Kavanaugh a little bit more red pill than he would have been if they would have just left him the hell alone. So, uh, you know, you have to be these these liberals, these leftists. I shouldn't even say liberals; they're leftists. They're they're Marxists. They're not our they're not our parents, our grandparents, Democrat Party anymore. These aren't liberals who love our country. These are the Democrat Party has too many leftists who are Marxists and hate America. They've gone too far with their attacks on the Supreme Court. They've gone too far, particularly on their tax attacks on Justice Kavanaugh and his family, and it's going to have the opposite effect. We just saw that with Roe versus Wade. I don't know if True. Justice Kavanaugh would have been a vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. He may have been more in the justice, the Chief Justice Roberts camp, which is uphold the 15-week ban without deciding Roe. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh was unflinching that Roe needed to go. No, fair enough. I mean, I, I I think back to that infamous day in late September 2018, when Christine Blasey Ford testified in the morning, and so many of us were sitting there on the sidelines watching this thing on C-SPAN, just fretting, sweating bullets. And then kind of Kavanaugh came out there super defiant, and he accused Democrats of possibly seeking revenge for the Clintons. And I remember kind of thinking then and there, like, wow, is this going to be like a radicalizing event, like an epical event for Brett Kavanaugh, the same way that what happened with Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill was. And, you know, I, I think thus far, four years or so into Kavanaugh's tenure, the results are a little mixed, but we shall see. I mean, there is still plenty of time left. But, you know, Mike, in our fairly remaining time here, I do want to 
quickly pivot over to the big tech issue, which is the issue that I volunteer as a council with your IAP group for. I, I, I want to start just at a broader view here. The tech issue has really, I think, kind of shifted the right approach to private sector corporations, to private sector tyranny, antitrust. It, it, it really has been front and center, more broadly speaking, I think, in this more kind of populist-oriented realignment that we've seen in both parties, and especially in the GOP over the past four or five years or so. Are you optimistic? I mean, are you happy with the way that the broader big tech fight is going right now, uh, speaking from the position of one of the field generals in that fight? Absolutely. When we started the Internet Accountability Project three years ago, as you know, Josh, as Rachel Bovard knows, who helped me start this thing, we were a very lonely voice on the right. We were the first group on the right to take on big tech, to take on big tech from the right. And we have the view that concentrated power is dangerous. And it doesn't matter whether it's government power or corporate power, concentrated power is a bad thing. And we need to make sure we don't have concentrated power because you're going to see the, uh, you know, the Marxist left, they have taken, taken over every institution in America, just about, I think big energy is the last one they haven't gotten their claws into, but they've taken over government. They've taken over universities. They've taken over woke corporations. They've taken over banking. They they've taken over big tech. They've taken over everything. And they want to use this power to censor, to silence, to delegitimize, to cancel, to debank, to kick out of healthcare, to make us pariahs in society if they disagree with our viewpoints. And that is unacceptable. We have to fight back or we're going, not only are we going to lose our country, we're going to lose our livelihoods. And we we just cannot let this happen. So when we started the Internet Accountability Project, we had a lot of the Chamber of Commerce types on the right say, oh, we believe in free markets and less government regulations and, you know, leave them alone. Big isn't bad. And they've just seen when big tech use their market power to crush competition, shutter small businesses and cancel conservatives and others with whom they disagree, including the president of the United States, the sitting president, including Rand Paul, a medical doctor talking about COVID. They've seen they've seen firsthand what we knew three years ago, Josh, is this is dangerous and we cannot let this happen. So we have called for, in order to have a free market, you have to have a functioning market. And when you have trillion dollar big tech monopolists, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple using their market power to crush the market, you don't have a functioning market, you don't have a free market. And that's why we have to turn to our 100-year-old antitrust laws, century-old antitrust laws, the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, to target these cancerous tumors on the on the free market. It's law enforcement. It's the opposite of regulation. Facebook is calling for regulations because they, they know that they can afford them and their competitors uh, cannot. So we need to update and enforce our century-old antitrust laws and break up Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. If they had to compete for their, if, 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 if Google competed with YouTube instead of acquired YouTube, there is no chance that YouTube would have censored Senator Rand Paul right. and medical medical doctor discussing COVID. The law enforcement regulation dichotomy is so important. It's something that I think I discussed with the aforementioned Rachel Bovard when Rachel was a previous guest on this show. 
you know, the, the Department of Justice has an antitrust division. I mean, that says everything you need to know. This is not like a like an, an obscure back office in the Department of Commerce talking about commerce clause based economic regulation. No, this is this is law enforcement, and it's law enforcement, by the way, with a capital R Republican Party pedigree. I mean, the Sherman Act itself. Who was Sherman? Well, Sherman was the sibling, if I'm not mistaken, of William Tecumseh Sherman. I mean, one of Abraham Lincoln's. I would say more controversial, but nonetheless highly successful generals in the Civil War. So, I mean, this is about as capital R Republican as it gets. Mike, we're slowly running out of time here, but before I let you go on the tech issue, one final question for you. If, as seems likely, I would say Republicans retake both houses of Congress, they're certainly going to retake the House. I am definitely bullish and optimistic on the Senate as well, though. If they retake both houses of Congress, what specific pieces of legislation should be top priority from a big tech perspective for the next Republican-led Congress? So at the Internet Accountability Project, we have a website, theiap.org, T-H-E-I-A-P.org, and we have a link on there called War Room. And people should go on there and click on that War Room link and see what the agenda is. There is still time in the lame duck session of this Congress, even if uh, Democrats lose the House and the Senate, where there is a rare closing bipartisan opportunity to pass first steps of antitrust reform, where uh, the, the three first steps are when you when state attorneys general file lawsuits against Google, Amazon, and Fa Facebook and Apple, they can have those lawsuits remain in their states instead of getting dragged out to the Northern District of California by big tech with tech-friendly judges and having their cases kicked. So that's important. There's also a, a there's also a bill that deals with filing fees. We want to increase the merger filing fees on Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple so we can beef up antitrust law enforcement. And then we also want big tech to disclose their Chinese and other foreign subsidies when they do mergers and acquisitions. These are important first steps. They've passed through the House and the Senate. They need to get reconciled in the lame duck session. And this needs to happen now. As for next Congress, I am frankly concerned that House Republican leaders are uh, not doing enough to hold big tech accountable. I think that our, our House Republican leaders are too beholden to big tech and their big tech money, particularly Google money. And uh, the Internet Accountability Project is going to uh, make this a front burner issue. We've already started to do this, but we'll continue to beat this drum. We need Republican politicians to not just talk the talk. They actually need to walk the walk. They can't say they're for, for holding big tech accountable publicly and then behind the scenes doing big tech's betting. And so the Internet, Internet Accountability Project, we're a conservative group, but we will certainly call out Republican politicians uh, as needed. And I've, I've done it repeatedly and I'll continue to do it. Not just to, I mean, not just will the IAP call out Republicans when need be. The IAP, to its immense credit, will even support Democrats when need be. I mean, Lena Khan, as the as the chairwoman of, of the FTC, I think is an interesting example of this. So the big tech issue definitely makes for strange political bedfellows. Mike Davis, we'll have to bring you back on another time. You're a good friend and you're a wellspring of knowledge in all these issues. So thanks so much for joining us this week. Thank you for having me on, Josh. And thank you for all you do for IAP and everything else. So thank you. Thanks again to Mike Davis for stopping by. I agree with Mike that it is very, very important 
that court watchers, conservatives pay very close attention to this U.S. Supreme Court term for the very simple reason that it is incumbent upon us, not that the court is supposed to be necessarily responsive to what we are thinking, what we are saying and writing or anything like that. On the contrary, that's kind of the entire purpose of Article 3 life tenure for federal judges and justices that they are not supposed to be responsive to what we are thinking, writing and saying. But it is incumbent upon us nonetheless as conservatives and just as civic-minded citizens to make sure that the remarkable Supreme Court term that was last term is not an aberration, does not go down the history books as kind of a one-off exercise and kind of feeding a little breadcrumbs here and there to conservatives, then going right back to the unfortunate status quo ante. And there are some very, very prominent cases that Mike and I alluded to this Supreme Court term I am cautiously optimistic about the affirmative action cases. So from my perspective, these are the marquee cases of the term. These are two cases, one out of Harvard, one out of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So that's one private school, one public school. The reason for that is that the public school, so UNC Chapel Hill, is unambiguously subject to the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause because it is a state actor as a public school. The Harvard private school example is a little more nuanced, but both universities nonetheless are easily subject to Title VI of the 1940, of the 1964, excuse me, Civil Rights Act, which is probably where these cases will be decided. Again, I am actually optimistic about these cases. I really do think, and I, I far be it from me to be the judicial optimist. On the contrary, I kind of made my bones as a legal blogger to an extent for being a Jeremiah of sorts, a prophet of lamentation and all things judicial branch related. But I am optimistic here. And I'm optimistic in part because Chief Justice Roberts himself, John Roberts himself, the sixth vote, not even the fifth vote, the sixth vote to overturn affirmative action, this is one issue that he has actually been remarkably consistent on. Go back to the 2007 case called Parents Involved out of Seattle, Washington, if I remember. And John Roberts had maybe his most famous line where he said, the quote, the way to end discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, close quote. It was a memorable line. It came from the pen of Chief Justice Roberts, who has become a swing justice on the court. It was actually so iconic, a line, funny enough, that Governor Ron DeSantis actually quoted that line. He quoted that line in his debate against Charlie Crist on Monday night in Fort Pierce, Florida, the debate that I was uh, actually in-person attending at. So we will see about the affirmative action litigation. I'm cautiously optimistic about both that and this major free speech religious liberty case out of Colorado as well. But you really should be paying attention to these cases and you also should be subscribing to this show. And we hope to see you back next week. But until next time, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Josh Hammer. Josh Hammer.